You're listening to the Trust Issues Podcast. I'm David Puner, a senior editorial manager at CyberArk, the global leader in identity security. IoT and OT devices are everywhere, from homes and offices to factories and power plants. They enable us to communicate, collaborate, automate, and optimize processes and services. But these interconnected devices are notorious for their firmware and software vulnerabilities tied back to weak credentials and inadequate identity security practices. Unaddressed IoT risks threaten consumer privacy sensitive enterprise data, and even public safety. More than 99% of organizations expect to face an identity-related attack in the next year, and more than half of them say it will be related to their digital transformation initiatives, such as cloud adoption or legacy app migration. So how can we protect our IoT and OT devices from these attacks? How can we ensure that only authorized users and applications can access them? And how can we manage the complexity and scale of these devices across our networks and supply chains? Today's guest, Brian Contos, has spent a lot of time thinking about questions like these. Brian, as you'll hear, has done lots of things in the security space over the course of his career. He's been a CISO and a CSO. He's written books. He's a podcast host. Who isn't? He's... (laughs) He's a security company entrepreneur, and he's currently the chief strategy officer at Sevco Security, an asset intelligence company. Befitting a guy who's worn so many hats in the security world, Brian and I have a wide-ranging conversation that covers topics including IoT and XIoT and how identity figures into the enormous puzzle. Here's my conversation with Brian Contos. Brian Contos, Chief Strategy Officer at Sevco Security. Welcome to Trust Issues. How are you today? Hey, David. It's great to be here. Very excited. Are you beaming to us today from uh, San Francisco, California? I am. I am. It's not so sunny California today, but uh, still great to be out here. Great. Well, thank you for joining us. By way of background, you've been in the security space for over 25 years. Among other things, you're an entrepreneur, author, and podcaster. Um, we will we'll talk a little bit about the podcast in a bit. But to start things off, how did you get into the cybersecurity business and what's the ride been from that entry point until now? Yeah, well, it's been a great ride. Uh, it's a fantastic industry and uh, I, I'm, I'm very blessed to have uh, joined it when I did uh, back in the uh, very late 1990s. I was actually in college and I got recruited to work for uh, DISA, the Defense Information Systems Agency. So very quickly, I just got kind of thrown into it. I was into security and hacking kind of leading up into that. I was actually part of a couple hacker groups. We called ourselves hacks. The Hardware and Computer Knowledge Society weren't really hackers. That was a college a college club that was a college all right yeah yeah and that led to that first job and after uh, i graduated from college uh, i moved to sao paulo brazil and uh, i took a job with uh, bell labs and uh, got to work all throughout latin america for a few years and i didn't speak portuguese i didn't speak spanish it was completely not the right fit but it was the best time and it was a great (laughs) a great way to kind of learn the industry and just uh you know you know grow up basically but after that, I really just started getting into startups. Um, I got approached by Meet Your On and 
Grant Geyer and Tim Belcher, um, really luminaries in the industry that said, hey, we're going to start this MSSP called Riptech. Do you want to be part of it? I'm like, sure, why not? So I moved from Brazil back to California. We built up Riptech. It was great. It was one of the first, um, first MSSPs. We eventually sold it to Symantec. Um, and after we did that, uh, I joined this very small company in the back of a uh, what looked like a dentist office in Sunnyvale, California. No <laughs> customers, no real product, uh, no revenue. And it was called ArcSight. And uh, we built up ArcSight, took that public. We sold it to HP. And at that point, I had the bug. I was like, this is all I want to do now for the rest of my career. I'm and I wrote a couple of, uh, books. Picturing yeah, like yeah. the office from Better Call Saul <laughs> when, when that started. Is that kind of accurate? <laughs> yeah. 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 With the huge desk where you can't open the door. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. It probably wasn't too much better than that in the, behind a, uh, a nail salon. Uh, but yeah, you know, it was, I, met, I met a lot of great people. I was there for about seven years um, through that process. And I wrote some books and kind of built up my career. I became a CISO uh, before, uh, before we uh, went public and before we sold. Uh, but then after that, uh, I, I just kept, kept, kept it rolling. So joined Imperva, then McAfee Labs. I ran emerging markets for McAfee Labs. So I went to like 50 countries in one year, which was, which was nuts. I don't suggest that. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, Solera Networks. And then my last company was uh, Veridin. And we sold Veridin to Mandia and then to Google. And uh, actually, a lot of the same people I did that company with, we had built ArcSite together. So through the years, I kind of stay with a, a very similar group. And then, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I'm on the board of a company called Phosphorus, which is an XIOT or IoT security company. And I'm currently the chief strategy officer uh, with Sevco, which is an asset intelligence company. And that's kind of the nickel tour. Great. Well, th- thank you. That's an excellent tour. And I'm going to look forward to um, asking you a little bit about XIOT in a moment. Um, but first, what did being a CISO back in you know, t- 2005, 2008, what was that role like compared to you know, current day CISO role? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. There, so there was some of the backend operational components that you might expect any CISO to have regarding security and governance. Although things like PCI and Sarbanes-Oxley and HIPAA weren't as common, some of those weren't even quite around at that point. They were just starting to starting to come to be. Uh, but a lot of what I was doing, and it was very similar to what I do today, which is sort of being on the front line, working with other CISOs, working with other security leaders in the field, sort of understanding what their points of pain are and sharing their stories with other CISOs and just just kind of collecting these stories and these best practices and lessons learned and what worked and what really, really didn't work. And then not only trying to fold that into the, the company I was with, like ArcSight, for example, to make sure we have a better solution, but also what I did operationally. So how can we make our organization more secure? So it's very interesting. So it's almost like being a CISO, but at the same time, you're always working with other CISOs to figure out how to improve and get better, which is kind of a unique situation because CISOs go to events and they, they have different groups and they get to interact. But that was actually part of my job that I had to do that. Uh, so uh, it, it was it was a very fun process and a very interesting way to kind of learn the roles and responsibility of what a CISO is by working with some of the best CISOs in the industry every day. Really, really interesting. So in your current role as Chief Strategy Officer at Sevco Security, one of the things that you're focused on is asset intelligence. What What is that and why is it important now? Yeah, it's it's such a loaded term. It's like 
cloud security or AI. It can, it can mean a million things to a million different people. But the, the way I like to sort of talk about asset intel is uh, think of it in four dimensions. So length, breadth, height, and time. Um, when I say length, what I'm talking about are asset types. So this is really important because these are, of course, a laptop is an asset or a virtual machine, but so is a vulnerability. So is a application. So is a user. So identity is really an important part of that. So that's length, the asset types. Breadth are the locations. So I care about stuff that's on-prem. I care about stuff that's in a data center. I care about if it's in the cloud, someone's using it from home, or someone's at Starbucks. So asset locations. So all my types, all my locations. Then we get into height. Height is where it gets really interesting when we're talking about asset intel, because what it really comes down to is what we call presence and state. Like, I want to know CrowdStrike is there. I want to know that, you know, Automox is there. I want to know that I have an identity management solution there. So it's important to know the presence of the security controls, but it's equally important to know the state. Ooh, well, that CrowdStrike is N minus two. You know, it's a couple versions too old. Or Automox hasn't communicated uh, with the management console for this device in over six months. Or this user shows up in Microsoft Active Directory, but we also show that they're the administrator on these 50 other machines that we're not sure they should be the administrator on. And all these little sticky bits that connect that, that's kind of the correlation. It's, it's a bit like um, SIM was to events and logs as asset intelligence is to assets, it's collection correlation. And the final piece is time, right? So of course I want real-time information. I wanna know that David was on 10.1.1.1 yesterday, and that device has these security controls, has these vulnerabilities. But I also wanna know that, well, who was on that device three months ago? Because of DHCP, it might not have been David, it might've been somebody else. And I need to know all that relevant information. So again, I think of asset intelligence in four dimensions, length, breadth, height, and time, all your asset types, your locations, the details, and the real-time and historical data. That's what I mean by that. And that's what Sevco focuses on in terms of asset intelligence for our customers. And so based on your explanation there, it seems that it is intrinsically entwined with identity. Oh, gosh, so much so. You know, Again, when you talk about assets to people, I think we all kind of default to it's a thing. It's a laptop. It's a server. Maybe some people today would think of it's it's a cloud asset, a virtual machine. And yes, it is. They're, they're absolutely right. But identity is so much a piece of that. Identity management solutions, privilege access management solutions like PAM, tools like CyberArk, for example. Anything in that realm, even Microsoft Active Directory and other directory type services, those are just a wealth of data about users. And if you're just looking at device information without user information, you're missing a huge piece of the puzzle. And it's hard to be uh, do critical analysis and, and do any type of correlation, anomaly detection, pattern discovery, temporal or volumetric analysis, if you don't have identity as a piece of that asset puzzle. So 100% all day long, every day of the week, identity has to be a critical piece of your asset intelligence solution, or else you're simply not looking at the entire puzzle. What is XIoT and how does it pose identity security challenges? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> just like asset intelligence, there's another loaded term. What's what's all this mean? So XIoT stands for- Extreme the extended, IoT? 
Uh, yeah, extreme. It should be extreme. Uh, it's the extended okay. Internet of Things. And there's really three categories, and they're pretty simple categories, and I think they're pretty intuitive. Um, the first one is what we generally think about when we think about enterprise IoT, uh, digital door lock, a voice over IP phone, a security camera, a printer, all of these things, right, that aren't what we would consider traditional computers. Now, at the end of the day, they're they're all running Linux, or most of the time they're running Linux, Ubuntu, or um, they're running BusyBox or Android, which is just a Linux derivative. So they're little Linux servers running around. And we find that most organizations have somewhere between about three to five per employee. So a 10,000 person company has between 30 to 50,000 more, or 30 to 50,000 XIoT devices, or about twice as many than they think. Uh, it's, it's always about wow. twice as many than they right. think they're gonna have. So those are that, that's enterprise. Then the other part of uh, XIoT, these are network devices, uh, your wireless access point, your network attached storage, your load balancers, your switches. Again, these are, are purpose-built devices. Those usually run BSD for their operating system. And then the final one, and this is a little bit more specialized because not all organizations have these. A lot of organizations in oil and gas, power and energy, transportation, water, um, you know, and many other what we'd call critical infrastructure groups have OT devices, or skated devices, some people call them. These are PLCs, programmable logic controllers, for example. These are essentially digital assets that control physics. So a device that's running a real-time operating system like VxWorks, it's going to control flow or voltage, or pressure, and it's used in batch manufacturing, or discrete manufacturing, or agriculture, and they're, they're, they're doing these very specific things. And again, they're purpose-built. Now, what all these things have in common, from this device controlling a dam, to your wireless access point, to a printer, is that they're purpose-built firmware and hardware. A printer is usually not a camera, and a camera is usually not a digital door lock, so they're, they're purpose-built. Um, they're network-connected, almost always, I would say probably over 99% of the time, even on the OT world, even the old monolithic stuff that was around before the internet <laughs> is, uh, is, has been retrofitted. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of them are running protocols like DNP3 or Modbus or serial over ethernet in addition to TCP. And what would be an example of one of those monolithic um, devices? Yeah, something that might be controlling uh, the Hoover Dam, okay. for example, right? Mm -hmm. These are these are very specialized devices, and they work really well. A lot of the times they're quite old. They're running like Windows NT 4.0, which has been end of life for, what, 15 years? I actually see that in the field. But the last thing that they have in common, in addition to being network-connected, purpose-built hardware and software, is they cannot run traditional endpoint security. So there's no CrowdStrike or Silence or McAfee running on these tools. There's no local firewall or IPS. There's no, uh, no anti-ransomware solutions. They're just there. They're little Linux servers, and there's a lot of them. So it's an extremely target-rich environment for attackers, both cyber criminals and nation states, to go after these devices. And oftentimes, it's not to go after the device for the sake of the device, although sometimes that is the case especially if they want to spy on you through a camera or unlock a door. But it's using those devices to then pivot to IT assets to maintain persistence, to evade detection, to exfiltrate data. And they maintain persistence really, really well because people generally aren't monitoring and they're certainly not securing these XIoT devices. So that's what Phosphorus really focused on, which is uh, discovering these devices and then securing them, rotating passwords, patching them, hardening them, 
managing the certificates. So it's a really, really great technology. I'm very happy to be on the board there. And it's also very complementary to what Sevco does in terms of asset intelligence, because guess what? XIoT is another asset type, just like an identity, just like a laptop, just like a virtual machine. It sounds like you're talking about, you know, thousands upon thousands of potential IoT connected Achilles heels of, of some sort. So much so. I hate throwing stats out because by themselves, they don't generally mean too much. But I can tell you this, uh, at Phosphorus, we've analyzed millions and millions of devices across multiple geographies, multiple industries, multiple device types. And in general, what we find is 50% of all the devices are running default passwords, XIoT devices. So go back to my other statement that there's about three to five per employee. So I've got a company with 10,000 people. I've got 50,000 XIoT devices. Again, remember, these are just little Linux servers most of the time. So I've got 25,000 Linux servers that have a default password that will take me all of three seconds to Google to figure out what that password is. The other 50%, the password might have been changed at the time it was installed, where somebody showed up with a, a ladder and a drill and mounted it, <laughs> mounted, mounted a camera to a wall. Nobody ever fixed it. The other part is they're all running end-of-life firmware. We can't, same reason with the passwords. Nobody ever updates or patch them, patches them. So if you've got 25% of all your devices are end of life, what's that come with? Vulnerabilities. And about 70% of these devices, 70% are running level eight, nine, or 10 CVSS scores, which is the highest level of risk. And generally what eight, nine, and 10 means is a remote attacker with little to no skill can take control of that device remotely and get administrative access. And again, if you think about these being little Linux servers and they have all the same capabilities, you can upload data, you can download data, you can use it to access other systems on the network, you can make API calls. It's a massive risk. And the bad guys know it. And they're like, well, why should we waste our time hacking laptops and servers and this or that when there's 25,000 devices that you're not even watching that we can get on and then use that to get into all your other assets? That's a, a big problem, and that's certainly one of the things that Phosphorus is solving. And then if you mesh what Phosphorus does with what Sevco does, now you're not just looking at XIoT, but you're looking at the entirety of all your asset types, and again, bringing it back, which also includes all your identity management solutions as well, because identity is just important to that equation as it is just for non-XIoT assets. To switch over to to building security startups, which you've been involved in, uh, you know, as you had mentioned earlier on in the conversation, and taking multiple companies through IPOs and acquisitions, what are some of the common security considerations when when companies go public or, or merge? Yeah, there's there's so much that has to be done. In fact, I've I've worked with companies very large, not for these companies, but I've worked with them and their security solutions. Uh, and they tell me they sometimes they acquire companies at a rate of, you know, two or three a month. They might not be massive companies they acquire, but you see a lot of that in the tech space. You see it in retail. You see it uh, manufacturing. There's there's a lot of that going along. Uh, so some of the things that really you have to look at during these types of acquisitions are, you know, First of all, you're going to do, uh, you know, inventory of what types of critical assets we have. And I'm, I'm talking at this from the perspective of just a security practitioner. Of course, there's lots of other things to consider. But if I have 
uh, this group has checkpoint firewalls and this group has Palo Alto and this group has silence and this group has CrowdStrike. And you kind of have to inventory all this information to find out what do you have, how it's protected. Well, the problem is that we notice in most organizations is chances are they don't really have their hands around this. They don't, they're not really sure how many devices they have. They know that they bought 10,000 licenses of a certain product and they know they have that installed someplace. And if you log on to CrowdStrike, it will tell you what CrowdStrike is protecting. But CrowdStrike doesn't know about Active Directory. Active Directory doesn't know about CrowdStrike. They don't know about Automox. They don't know about uh, you know their PAM or identity solution. So in a lot of these cases, when you're when you're going through these acquisitions and these mergers, a big part of it is considering we have to figure out what we've got. We have to figure out how it's secured. What have we paid for? Are there any type of financial gains we can have by combining our licenses or moving what you have over to us? And that's a big problem because at the beginning of this process, nobody knows anything. They, they simply just don't know what they have. Even the acquiring company, generally speaking, doesn't really have a good grasp of this. So all that to say this, a lot of this boils down to simply understanding what's in your environment and being able to instrument that. So if you are going through acquisitions of other companies, you can quickly ascertain what they have and how will that fold into your equation. It seems like a very simple idea and a very basic concept, but this equates to months and months of man manual labor. It could equate to millions and millions of dollars. It could equate to delays in the organization actually merging and being effective. So that's just one of probably thousands of little check boxes you have to look at, but it's something that I see time and time again the end of the day, people simply don't know what they have and they really don't know how it's secured. At the end of the day, is determining what they have helpful in heightening security when, you know, in this merger process, sort of maybe inadvertently? It is, you know, it's it, when you're talking about security, take, I'll just use an example, take CIS, right? So you've got the You've got the CIS standards and there's, there's NIST standards and you've got PCI and you, you've got all these different regulations and mandates out there. Almost all of them, the very first kind of items that they mention you have to do when you do security, it always defaults to the same thing. Know what you have, know what's deployed, where it is, what's it's running, right? Do I have a hundred devices or a thousand? Do I have 2000 licenses of EDR? If I do, how have they been deployed? It's really kind of just having that initial inventory. And you know, the Center for Internet Security, I mentioned CIS earlier, step one and step two of their framework is specifically about hardware and software inventory. It couldn't be clearer. If you look at PCI, PCI does the same thing, asset inventory, asset management, visibility into what you have, or from an IT perspective, it's called observability, same thing. Um, it's all about knowing what you have. And once you know what you have, then you can take those next steps to incident prevention, incident detection, incident response, alerting, all these other types of things that you care about. But you can't really do any of those effectively unless you really know what you have. And again, it's, it's the most intuitive thing in the world, but to execute on that intuition historically has been really challenging, especially to do it at scale in an automated way, in a way that considers today very ethereal devices like cloud assets that might get spun up and spun down just every few hours, right? So it's a, it's a dynamic world and it's a dynamic issue, but it's something that if you can get in front of, it makes everything else you do in security that much better. And not just in security, but IT ops as well as GRC. So once we're past the mergers and the acquisitions, 
How hard is it for businesses who are committed to security to not let security protocols impact the efficiency of their businesses? Yeah, that's another one. You might uh, be in a situation where the company you acquired is has a far stricter security posture. It's much more security stat- savvy than the acquiring company and trying to determine what can we do to affect the goal. And usually the, the mission of a bank isn't generally the, to be the most secure bank in the world. The mission of a hospital isn't supposed to be the most secure hospital in the world. These might be things they're concerned about, but it's not their business mission, right? So security becomes a little bit secondary. And take a hospital, for example. They're, they're just great examples, healthcare providers. They generally don't have massive budgets juxtaposed to what you might see in a government agency or a financial services company. So they're doing a lot, a lot of things. They have the same risk, but they have a, a smaller staff. And every dollar that they're putting into security is a dollar they can't put into a new MRI machine, a PA, a doctor, whatever the case might be. These are, you know, they have to be very, very careful. And a lot of these healthcare providers start off on a negative because they're not allowed to refuse care. So they're usually starting as a deficit because if somebody comes in hurt, of course, they have to help them regardless, and they may or may not get paid for that, but it's it's the right thing to do. So they they kind of start from this negative balance, not the case in a bank. You can't usually go to a bank and withdraw money, at least legally, uh, unless you have money to withdraw. Ha- healthcare providers are a little bit different. So it's it's actually taking a step back from the technology and looking at what the business mission is and understanding how can security actually be an enabler to what that business mission is. And that's sometimes a, a contrarian thing to think about because a lot of people historically have thought about security as the department of no. And all they do is kind of try to stop things and they have to be paranoid. And yeah, there's there's some of that for sure. But security can actually be an enabler. And if security is very highly operationalized and it's effective, then you can actually do things more quickly. You can more quickly embrace that mergers and acquisition. You can more quickly release that application to your customers. You can more quickly add people to a, a new new environment that's going to be far more uh, effective for their patients to, to leverage, whatever the case might be. And in these environments, again, we were talking about XIOT earlier. There's a ton of those XIOT devices in these environments. There's a ton of IT devices. There's proprietary devices that have to be, just be managed through a license with an MRI company, a vendor that says, oh, don't touch this, don't patch it, don't secure it. You're paying us $30,000 a year to take care of it. We're not going to patch it either. But if you try to do it, it's going to break the warranty. So you, you have all these considerations to take care of. So I would say step out of the tech bit for a while. Step back and, and say, what are we actually trying to do? You know, What are our short, mid, and our long-term goals? And how can security act as an enabler for that? Still, you need to worry about ransomware and all the bad things that all the bad people want to do to you, of course. But you can also take the time to be a little bit more strategic and plan ahead. That's really what these things are about. Just don't have your security teams tactically fighting fires all day long. Have enough resources in place where some folks can be thinking long-term and strategically and then enabling your organization to be more effective and more efficient. And that's that's really what security should should really strive to be, is an enabler for the company. So beyond strategic, are there any particular characteristics of the leader's or companies or industries that are doing all of this particularly well? It's sad to say this, but it's it's actually the case is individuals and organizations that have been through the ringer. If they've got gotten hit by ransomware, 
if uh, you know an entire security team has been let go because of an incident that occurred that they got blamed. Once you've been through something like that and you've got the battle scars, your next time around, you don't let those things happen. So the organizations that I see that are actually pretty much on the cutting edge are organizations that had to learn some hard lessons at some point. And I wish we would all be able to learn from other people and say, okay, this bad thing happened to them. Let's make sure that doesn't happen to us. But I don't think that's how humans work. <laughs> I think bad things happen to happen to us. And then, then we learn as opposed to learning from other people's mistakes. So go through the war, get the scars. You'll probably be better off for it the next time around. So as someone who's business-minded as well as security-focused, how do you look at the balance between security and efficiency or productivity? You know, I, I think that was definitely the case a couple of decades ago. Um, you had to jump through all these hoops to, to get things done. But today, the efficiencies aren't too bad. Just take Let's just take something very simple, passwords, right? In, in the old days, people would just if the device even required a password, they'd write it down on a sticky note, or they'd use that same password everywhere. They're using it for their bank. They're using it on their laptop. They're using it for their kids' uh, accounts, for some games, whatever the case might be. Very bad uh, practices. And there certainly weren't uppercase, lowercase, special characters and numbers. They were like password, maybe right. password with a one. Password one, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so so now you you fast forward to today, we still have passwords but we have multi-factor authentication. And I don't even know what my password is on so many of my solutions because I use a password manager and it's some crazy 50 character nonsense. So if somebody came up to me with a gun and said, what's your password to your, your Gmail account? I'm like, I literally have no idea. <laughs> I literally have no idea. And furthermore, if I'm, if I'm using that, I don't even know the password. And then maybe I have an app or a text message that will say, you know, just authenticate, type in this, you know, five digit or, or six digit code that comes across that, that has put us so far ahead of where we were 20 years ago and, for, and something so basic. And I think it's easy. I, I, I don't think it's a lot of extra work for people to take these steps to make sure they're using a password manager, they're using multi-factor authentication. It adds maybe a couple seconds more to your process, but it also streamlines the process and makes it a little bit better. Now we can expand beyond that. That's a very simple example, right? That's kind of a, a user or consumer perspective. So if we look at automation, automation really has changed a lot of what we do for network security as well. So back in the day, your SIM, your security information event management solution would collect log data and event information and some human would correlate it and run some rules and, and kind of get a result and respond. Well, nowadays that still happens. The SIM will collect it, but an automated way, it might be tied into an incident response system like a source solution. And that source solution can automatically or semi-automatically respond. It can say, hey, we've got to block this user or we've got to take this device off the network or make some type of change. So with these solutions, if you want to block a user, if you want to take a device off the network, if you want to leverage a network access control solution to segment them or whatever case you want to be, a lot of this now is completely automated, right? You can automate these things based on a lot of logic and, and even AI now is being starting to be tied into these things. Uh, the bad guys are using it as well, but as are the good guys. And it's a nice situation where we talk about security being the land of no and being this thing that inhibits productivity. I'd actually argue today in most cases, if you're leveraging automation and you're doing it well, and you've taken all those other steps we talked about earlier, 
it can actually be highly effective. It can make the, the experience for your users better. It'll be improved. They'll be more secure. At the same time, the way they go about doing business will be much simpler. Single sign-on, for example, right? So I don't have to have, have all these credentials. There's another very, very simple example. But again, I, I, I do feel like we've, we've, we've passed that bump now where security is actually enabling and not just slowing things down. So to hook on to AI, which you just mentioned, generative AI, of course, is a subject that's been getting tons of attention this year. As we steamroll into 2024, um, when this episode comes out, probably be the end of November, beginning of December, what stands out to you about 2023 in cybersecurity and identity security? What surprised you? Where do you think we're headed as far as trends or any predictions you may have for 2024? It's always an arms race between uh, the people defending the network and the people trying to attack it. You know, and that network, I'm using that as a very broad term, could be the cloud, could just be someone's, someone's laptop. So AI is giving the advantage to both groups. So who's going to embrace it more quickly and which tools are going to be available to them to, to leverage? And again, part of that arms race, which has always happened in, in security. I think AI is just going to add a little bit more fire to that or a lot more fire potentially. Some of the things that I, I thought we would have solved, to be honest, by now are basic blocking and tackling, uh, as we talked about before, asset intelligence, being able to know about and secure all of the devices within my environment, being able to mitigate ransomware, stop phishing attacks. Uh, these are all things that are still happening. They, they, they've been happening for several years, and they're probably going to continue to happening in the years to come. The problem with AI is, I think, uh, cyber criminals, nation states, sometimes they're the same people, cyber criminal by day, nation state actor by night. Um, they're going to have these advanced tools, sometimes nation state, you know, funded military grade tools to leverage all of those same attacks that we've talked about before, the phishing scams and malware distribution and black hat search engine optimization and DDoS and ransomware, all these things we've been talking about forever. But now they're taking advantage of AI. I think in particular, the phishing scams are going to get a lot better. I think people are able to uh, deep fake very cheaply and at very high quality uh, this conversation. Maybe I'm not even who you think I am at this point. Those types of things. Are, are you? Uh, I, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> who, who knows? Because but, if I'm proving who yeah. I am by solving you know, two times one, and that's enough to say, okay, you're a human being. When it gets a lot more complicated with these, you know, really, really realistic deep fakes and AI, yeah. you know, other kind of replications of voice and whatnot, um, yeah. how is that going to be possible to prove who you are? Right. Once AI is smart enough to read a captcha or look <laughs> at these eight grids and tell me which which ones have a stop sign in them. Right. Uh, you know, I don't think we're that far. I think AI is going to get pretty fast, pretty quickly. And actually, there was there was a study that I read where they enabled an AI to basically try to bypass some CAPTCHAs. And what it did was it actually signed up for a service telling people that it had a disability and said, hey, can you can you read this for me? I'm unable to process this. And they said, absolutely. So it, it learned how to be a little bit evil. Yeah, uh, which was interesting. I, I think at that point you have to unplug it. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, good luck. But with you, that. you hear about all these little stories that are happening with AI, and we're not 
100% sure how it figured it out. But um, all I can say is this. I, you know, I go to the same security conferences, probably a lot of your, your listeners do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, walk any floor and the, the buzz is all about AI. It's all AI and ML. And I can guarantee you on the other side of that, if you're on the dark web and you're a cyber criminal, you're looking for tools and you're looking for ways to, you know, uh, compromise organizations and extract value, those same conversations are happening. So again, it's that arms race. So while I think we're going to be experiencing all the same things we have over the last decade or more, now we're going to see AI injected into this which means that the security vendors and the solutions are going to have to be able to mature to mitigate that because the threats that we're going to experience over the next three years, we haven't really fully grasped what they're going to be yet because we haven't started to see them in the wild. There are some proactive steps being taken to say what we think might happen, but we don't, we can't predict everything. And I think we're going to be, uh, there's going to be some interesting things that occur. Um, So hopefully again, the security vendors are able to embrace AI in a quicker and more holistic way than the attackers will to mitigate those threats. Knock on wood, let's hope that that's what happens. And a way to uh, to keep your finger on the pulse of those trends, of course, to continue to listen to trust issues in 2024, but also the IoT Security Podcast, uh, which you're the co-host of and is powered by uh, Phosphorus Cybersecurity. Um, how is that going? Where can people find it? And uh, how does hosting a podcast measure up to other things you've done, like being a a CISO or chief security officer? Yeah. So, well, first of all, you can find the uh, XIOT Security Podcast uh, on all your favorite podcatchers. So, uh, you know, Spotify, Apple, Google. Also, you can just go to phosphorus.io and you can see the full listing. Uh, It's a podcast that I co-host with John Vecchi, who is absolutely amazing. It's really a great experience, you know, because, again, Pretty much my entire career has been at least partially customer facing. So in the field, working with people, hearing what's working, what's not, their points of pain. Um, And this is a great way to kind of do that in a new medium and getting out to to more individuals. So maybe they're not, you know, not everybody can come to RSA or Black Hat to hear me give a talk, but anybody can, you know, download a podcast and go, oh, that sounds like an interesting topic or, or that's a great guest. I'd love to hear about that. We've had some really interesting guests. Well, then no. CyberArk's resident transhuman. You had him on recently. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great example. Here's a person who has a body filled with little, little computers, essentially, to help him do everything from start his car and unlock doors to uh, pay uh, at, at credit card machines. And he's, he's got some that are, that, you know, probably since we've last spoken, he's got some more. And that's an area that's really interesting because now people are becoming IoT devices. And right now we're we're definitely at the frontier days of this. I mean, there's they're 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 kind of special use cases, and it's hard to find somebody to to actually do some of these because sometimes it has to actually be done by uh, a doctor, but in some cases it's done by people that do piercings. Right. So which one requires which? So it's I guess it's not very well regulated. Maybe no, is the no. best way to say it. There's Glenn a little is bit a of the pioneer, wild west. That is for sure. <laughs> yeah, he's a pioneer. Um, but I can see as this evolves, somebody has something to, you know, it's a bionic man idea, right? I can see better. I can hear better. I can jump higher. I can run faster. Who knows what type of augmentation we're going to have in the future. Um, so we've got that happening and robotics and AI and all these things are kind of coming together at the same time. So our conversation 10 years from now 
might be completely different, living in a completely different world. And after talking to Len, I- I'm hoping it won't be dystopian because mm-hmm. uh, I-, I always think of Blade Runner when I talk right, to Len. Exactly. Um, but uh, uh, let let let's hope uh, let's hope that that's not the case, and uh, we mature as a society, and we're we're able to handle this technology because right now our our technology is kind of outpacing our ability to handle it by by a couple ticks. Brian Contos. Thank you so much for coming on to Trust Issues. Really appreciate it. Uh, really, really great stuff. And and look forward to catching up with you again sometime down the road. Thanks so much, David. It's great being on the show. Thanks for listening to Trust Issues. If you like this episode, please check out our back catalog for more conversations with cyber defenders and protectors. And don't miss new episodes. Make sure you're following us wherever you get your podcasts. And let's see. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, drop us a line if you feel so inclined. Questions, comments, suggestions, which come to think of it are kind of like comments. Our email address is trustissues, all one word, at cyberarc.com. See you next time.